From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hello, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Fine art is to be appreciated by everyone, not just the elite. That was the vision of the founder of the Barnes Foundation. An avid Philadelphia art collector, Albert C. Barnes collected some of the world's most important Impressionists, Post-Impressionist, and modern paintings, including works by Renoir, Cezanne, Matisse, and Picasso. His interesting pairings of these pieces alongside African masks, Native American jewelry, and decorative metalwork is a feast for the eyes. The Barnes is celebrating over 100 years of its rich history, and a book that encapsulates it is The Barnes, Then and Now, Dialogues on Education, Installation, and Social Justice. It's edited by Martha Lucy, Deputy Director for Research, Interpretation, and Education at the Barnes Foundation. Charity Howard and I visit the Barnes to talk with Martha about how a century-old mission is carried forward and adapted in today's radically different landscape. All of that rich history is coming up on Bridging Philly. This is Bridging Philly from KYW News Radio 1039 FM. We're here at the Barnes Foundation as our eyes feast on the massive collection of art from around the globe. It was established by Albert C. Barnes in 1922 with the goal of democratizing access to art education. What exactly does that mean? How did Mr. Barnes, a pharmacologist, develop a love of art? And what is the method to his approach? We're joined by Martha Lucy, Deputy Director for Research, Interpretation, and Education at The Barnes. Lucy is also author-editor of the new book, The Barnes, Then and Now, Dialogues on Education, Installation, and Social Justice. Thanks for having us here today. Thank you so much for being here. Talk about what we are seeing here. What room are we in? And what are some of the pieces here that we're looking at? So this is the main gallery. It's the largest gallery. It's the first gallery when you come in. And it is filled with some of the real masterpieces of the collection. And it kind of establishes the artists that Barnes felt were most important to modern European art in the early 20th century and that's so there are really big important paintings by Cezanne, by Matisse, by Picasso and Renoir. And those were the artists that he collected in depth especially at first and then he started building out his collection to include objects and sculpture and tapestries and you know from around the world. Um, now I'm a baby this is my first time here and <laughs> I'm a passive art lover but really just starting to learn about the barn so I want to kind of get everyone caught up on the history of the Barnes. Now Dr. Barnes amassed a fortune from what I understand at a very young age that allowed him to explore his love of art as his early days as a pharmacologist. Can you talk about that? Sure, yes, he was a scientist. He was from Philadelphia, went to the University of Pennsylvania, got his medical degree and developed a drug called Argerol, made a fortune in pharmaceuticals, um, but he eventually, and I want to say this was early 1910s decided that he really wanted to pour himself into collecting art and so he made his first batch of major paintings in 1912 okay. um, and then he was sort of off to the races and building and building and building this collection really quickly focusing mostly on modern french painting at first 
Um, and then in 1922, he decided that he wanted to turn his whole collection into an educational institution because at first it was just a, you know, a private collection. And then he chartered the Barnes Foundation in 1922 and it opened in 1925. Okay, so let's immerse ourselves in the year 1922, more specifically the socioeconomic and philosophical and cultural scene that was happening at the time. This is as Dr. Barnes seen very much against the establishment. What were things like then? He was definitely a maverick, very anti-establishment. And this was the sort of tail end of the progressive era when there was a lot of focus on social and political reform. Um, you know, labor unions were fighting to get more rights for workers and education reformers were working to get more kind of progressive and experiential pedagogies into the public schools. Um, so it was really this time of when the country first really addressed social inequalities. So that's kind of what was in the air. And in Philadelphia, especially during, you know, between 1910 and 1920, you had this influx of this doubling of the black population yeah. because of the, the migration. And so there are all sorts of sort of, you know, racial problems that were surfacing around the time that he founded this place. Um, and he was really aware of that. You know, he had workers in his factory that were African-American and he was definitely, you know, very attuned to the disparity in educational opportunities for the black community. So that's kind of where it was coming out of. It was really a desire to make education more accessible to people who were sort of underprivileged. So I really think that Barnes was able to, like kind of his magic was able to couple the political aspect of what was going on around them, but also the social, because there was a lot going on in New York and Philadelphia and large cities with what we talk about music, art, he understood what the impact was from the people, from the ground, into what it really meant long-term, what the vision was. And he had a vision. Can you talk about that vision? He, he Yes, absolutely. These are the, also the decades of the Harlem Renaissance, and um, Barnes was very interested in the art and culture of the black community and he would travel to New York and he was friends with Alain Locke and you know there are all sorts of connections there. So he was influenced by the writings of John Dewey um, who was an education reformer and who like was really advocating for more progressive education and for sort of equality in education and you know he wrote this book called Democracy and Education which argued that you can't have a true democracy without an intellectually engaged citizenry. And then Barnes said, you know what, I'm going to create a place where this can actually happen and where people don't have to feel like they need to belong to the upper classes in order to experience art. Right. Art being for every man, for the most part. That's right. And I think that, that in the 1920s, it was still a sort of a novel concept. But I think that's something that's important to understand when you're talking about his collection of modern art. So he's buying his first pieces in 1912. And he was considered crazy for buying Matisse and Picasso. Nobody right. was really buying these artists. And the example that I like to give about how upsetting Matisse's art was when some of his paintings were presented in New York and then Chicago, Matisse was actually burned in effigy by a group of art students. And they put him on trial, you know, not actually him, but they did a mock trial. 
because the work was seen as just sort of disrespectful to yeah. tradition, sort of the downfall of civilization. These artists are crazy. There were actually doctors at the time. This is in a public dialogue. There were psychiatrists who were diagnosing these artists as they were sort of mentally deranged. Right. So Barnes leaned in. You know, by the 1930s, these artists became more sort of established and accepted. Yeah. But when he was first building this collection, he was really kind of out on his own. Um, and I love looking at the newspaper clippings from 1922, 1923. There's one that calls this place the $6 million shrine to all the craziest art. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand about Albert Barnes sort of and his place in history is that he was one of the first to really promote modern European and American art. Yeah. Um, I mean, this place was founded seven years before the Museum of Modern Art opened in New York. We'll have more with the Barnes and our guest Martha Lucy coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome back to Bridging Philly on the road at the Barnes Museum. This is room 19. We're on the second floor, and it's a room uh, that's sort of known for its really big, beautiful Matisses and Picassos and all sorts of other things. Now, one of the things I notice immediately in this room, along with the big pieces, there are couplings of bowls, I don't want to say they're the bowls, but different structures, different ironworks uh, and the like coupled along with the paintings. Is there a method to this? Very much so, yes. It's all very deliberate and sometimes it can kind of look like, I've heard the arrangement of the collection described as haphazard, um, like things are kind of thrown together, but that is not the case at all. Everything was incredibly sort of meticulously thought out okay. by Albert Barnes and you will see on a wall with Matisse's, you will see um, door hinges hanging next to it. Yeah. Or, um, below the Matisse's that I'm looking at right now, there's a Pennsylvania German blanket chest. Um, so different culture, different time period, different medium. There are andirons and just things that don't go together necessarily in the history of art. So he is not arranging his collection according to sort of the chronology of the history of art. He is putting things together that have visual connections. And so that's one of the things that he sort of wanted to encourage students to do was to really try to look and say, okay, well, why is this door hinge next to this painting? Maybe it's about the curve of the hinge and how it picks up this line in the painting. And by doing that, it's sort of fun um, and sort of freeing as we've been talking about, but it also, kind of gets you to look closely, yeah. sort of without even really thinking about it. You're like, wow, all of a sudden you're looking at the use of line in this painting. And um, so it's sort of all over the place. The metalworks are in every room. There are 880 something pieces, you know, works of metal, and they're ordinary household objects usually. Spatulas, ladles, keyhole escutcheons, door hinges. And so it's pretty unusual <laughs> to have these things hung on the same wall as uh, like modern you know, European painting. 
Um, but again, it's about the formal analogies and about the sort of relationships between those things and getting you to really look closely. And it's also about kind of breaking down hierarchies. All of these things were created by humans and are on the same level. Yes. You almost feel as though uh, when you think about the spatula, you think about the household item, you think of the average person, yeah. someone who's walking through their home with something, and he's coupling that with these pieces from what you would think would be a hierarchy, and he's saying art is art. Art is art, exactly, mm -hmm. and you can, and you can find it in your everyday life. Um, and right over there, there's a spatula hanging above a New Mexican little tiny devotional painting above a Modigliani. But yeah, I think it's very much about extending what we think of as art um, into our everyday lives. And making it accessible again. Making it accessible. Now, the book is concentrated on three dialogues, education, installation, and social justice. Can you talk a little bit about education and the goals that he had for it and how it's still being upheld today at the Barnes? Yes. Um, this place was founded out of Barnes's concern about the state of education in the United States and how important education is to democracy, especially art education in the United States. Um, at the time, museums were really thought about as a place for the upper classes, and people went to museums and you were supposed to sort of have this contemplative experience. It was really just sort of about that aesthetic experience, and it required prior knowledge. And so he wanted to create a model that was very anti-elitist and that did not require prior knowledge and that was not necessarily about having some sort of you know grand aesthetic experience but that was really about getting you to learn and look and use your eyes and your brain. Now Dr. Barnes probably never used the term social justice specifically but that's what his mindset was even back then. Women had just secured the right to vote um, black Philadelphians were developing their own learning programs. The Harlem Renaissance was in full swing. Um, he was very forward thinking. Talk about the social justice aspect. Yeah, he was very forward thinking and he was very much a supporter of racial equality. For him, social justice and education really went hand in hand. So he felt that what he could contribute to sort of making a more equal society was creating a place where everybody, you know, he called people like the plain people. He meant just sort of like people from all walks of life could come and learn about art. So it's really, I think social justice and education are really sort of in a way kind of interchangeable for him. But he also did a lot to support black artists and writers and musicians, and he offered scholarships. He didn't collect that much work by black artists. He collected Horace Pippin, but he was very much a promoter of black art and culture, just sort of in his writings. So a lot of what was going on in France, he was recognizing like the actual social justice aspect where black people were allowed to not only perform and being respected for their artwork, but they were coming back home and they were being put in the back of buses and they were being completely uh, dehumanized. Mm -hmm. But in Paris, a black artist in particular, you know, we look at the singers, the dancers, we look at uh, the other artists that were in salons. He really wanted to almost reflect that and bring that back home and acknowledge that, that black artists overseas were being respected, but here in our own country. You know, I've never thought about that, um, about the sort of comparison with how artists were regarded in Paris and in Europe, black artists. Um, but I'm sure that you're right, that he was 
he had seen that for himself, like on his trips to Paris and was bringing that back. They were ahead of us socially. Progress was progress. Yeah. He is a scientist by background, so he kind of used the scientific method in talking about things like uh, structure and color and lines and depth, really breaking down, trying to figure out what grabs the eye. I, I just find that so fascinating. I think you just nailed it, um, what was interesting to him. I honestly think it kind of drove him crazy. You know, he would say to some of his friends who were artists, he would say, explain to me why this Renoir is better than this Cezanne. Explain to me, I don't understand it. And he really wanted to understand. And he really wanted to sort of like put it into scientific terms. I don't want to say that he reduced works of art to a formula, because that's not what he did. He developed this method of looking at art and talking about art where you sort of come to it without necessarily knowing anything about the artist, but you are just looking at it as a work of art. And you know all of the knowledge that you need about the work of art is actually right in front of you. And that's why his approach was so kind of welcoming and accessible, because you didn't need any prior knowledge. I love that about Barnes because he kind of came at it as though art is how it makes you feel. And I think that's why it was so important to have that sociological edge to it. That's maybe where the science came in. He was able to look around himself and recognize that art has impact. And not only does it have impact, but modern art has progress and progress yes. has impact. It's a period when all of the traditions and conventions for what art should be are really becoming challenged and overturned. Trees don't have to be green and right. grass green. You know, right. it's like artists start experimenting with color and it's like, you know what, this tree is going to be pink. And um, just really overturning expectations. One of the things I noticed, Martha, and of course, this is my first time here, so I'm looking for the little placards, the little cards. Yes, I yes. need to read information about yes. each piece, but there's nothing written about any of the pieces. What's the method behind that? Yes, there are little tiny names attached to the frames, but I think it creates a different feeling for everybody. Sometimes people are frustrated, for sure, by the lack of, you know, it's like, well, what am I supposed to do now? How do these paintings relate to each other? Because right. it can be confusing and overwhelming, but I think a lot of people are sort of liberate, feel liberated by it. And it's like, I don't have to do anything except look. But I will add that we have an app called Barnes Focus where you can bring in your phone, hold it up to a work of art, and it'll pull up some sort of basic information about it. So the idea is that like, you can make the experience that you want. If you want to go through the barns that way, easy. But if you want to just come in and not read anything, that's totally also very easy. Because just like Barnes, it wasn't necessarily if you liked it, it was that what was your reaction to it? Yes. It wasn't necessarily the actual art, but what was your reaction yes. to the art? Yes, that idea of the reaction to the art and the work of art as an experience. And I think that Barnes really hooked onto that idea. Yes, it's about looking at the work of art, but you have to like look at something for a long time and really sort of almost kind of build a relationship with it. 
And that is the experience that you're taking away. It's sort of more important than the work itself is kind of the interaction that you have with it. With such an impressive collection of art with Matisse, Renoir, Cezanne, Van Gogh, and the like, did Dr. Barnes have a favorite artist? Yeah, um, I think his favorite artist was Renoir. And um, if we just look at the number of works in the collection, he collected more Renoir than any other artist. There are 181 in the collection. It's a, the biggest collection in the world. And he wrote a year after Renoir died, which was in 1919. Barnes wrote in 1920. He said, Renoir, to me, was sort of like a god. Mm-hmm. Um, but he also adored Matisse and Picasso, and maybe we'll get upstairs to see the collection of African sculpture. Okay, yeah, um, there's all sorts of, you know, it's not just French modernism. But I think that for an artist like Renoir, um, he really stood out for Barnes because he was modern, but also sort of classical enough so that it wasn't this total break from the past that critics were so worried about when they talked about modern art being like, you know, the downfall of civilization. Now, before we head upstairs, can you talk about this particular piece that you see when you first walk into this room? What's the story behind that piece? Oh, yeah, this is um, like one of the really iconic works in our collection. And um, it's the only site-specific work in the collection, the only one that was really commissioned for the barn. So this is Matisse's dance, The Dance, and it's on three separate panels, so three canvases. It sort of looks like it's painted directly onto the wall, but it wasn't. It was painted on three canvases, and between like 1930 and 1933. Wow. 1933 wow. is when it was installed, and Barnes commissioned it. And Matisse, you know, had come to visit the collection and was floored by just the way that it was arranged and by what he had and you know by the time that Matisse came to visit the collection in 1930 for the first time Barnes had collected a lot of Matisse's works that he probably hadn't seen in a while and so it was this sort of very moving experience for him and then Barnes said well why don't you do this mural or this um, piece to fill in the arches and it took some convincing. Matisse did not want to do it. It was a really big project, huge project. Barnes, you know, was very convincing. And so Matisse went back to the south of France and rented a big garage, huge space where he could work on it. I mean, it's just a beautiful, um, really striking and, and powerful work. And it's one of the later Matisses in the collection. Most of what we have is from like the early 20th century, but this is a really important work actually in Matisse's career because he had been sort of in this, almost in a sort of rut um, where he hadn't been doing anything all that interesting. And then he gets this commission and he rethinks everything. And then he has this like explosive decade. This is incredible. I I can't believe, I'm sitting here listening to a take on a conversation between Dr. Barnes and Matisse and commissioning a piece of art. It's it's amazing. Oh my God! Overwhelming when you think about it. And and there's so much more to the story. Wow. Um, there's this whole correspondence in the archives. They really sort of adored each other, but they also got into fights. And Barnes was impatient, and he was saying, "Where's you know? I want to see a, a sketch or whatever." And Matisse was not giving it to him. And then there was this whole sort of fiasco when Matisse realized, after having worked on the mural for at least a year that he had made it the wrong size. 
Um, wow. It wasn't going to fit into the arches. And we have that telegram in our archives where Matisse says, I have made a big error or, oh or something like that. Wow. And I, I just think, I'm just like, oh <laughs> my God, imagine. Wow. I know. Um, Incredible. And I just imagine sort of being Matisse and like realizing that mistake and then having to write that telegram. So what was the fix? So he had to leave that one aside and start over. And that one is now at a museum in Paris. Um, but I think that I'm maybe a little bit biased. You know, so this is the second version and I think it's better. It's better than the first one. We'll have more with the Barnes and our guest, Martha Lucy, coming up on Bridging Philly. Welcome back to Bridging Philly on the road at the Barnes Museum. So what are some of the things we're seeing in this room? So we are in room 22. Now we are seeing African sculpture, African masks, juxtaposed with all sorts of objects from around the world, um, modern paintings by Picasso and Modigliani. So Barnes collected his collection of African objects kind of all at once in 1922. And there are at least 100 objects. And what he wanted to focus on was their aesthetic importance rather than display them as kind of anthropological specimens, which is how they were shown in you know, science museums around the country, natural history museums. He was looking at these as, you know, these are really sophisticated and they had so much impact on, you know, artists like Matisse and Picasso and Modigliani. Yeah. They were all looking at African sculpture and kind of really kind of like mimicking, like borrowing from the sort of abstracted yes. forms, right? And so Barnes knew that. I mean, another thing about these is like, they weren't made to be in a display case. Yeah, they were not necessarily made as works of art. Like somebody would have worn this mask in a ceremony. I do see the influences uh, in the uh, pieces and from the other artists if here. You look Picasso over here, really it's, it's really striking. I mean, look at this Picasso. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's Dugan. Yeah, and because so many of them were made out of wood, right? They easier to, to deteriorate. 
And then you had lighter pieces that were for masks and things like that because they needed to be worn on the face. But a lot of the harder woods like mahogany and ebony, they were darker, they would retain the oils, they would also retain a little bit more of the climate. And it was much more indicative of where it was from. So you'd see West Africa, you could see it in the wood. The collection is just, I don't really have words, it's just impressive and almost overwhelming. It, you yeah. really have to take the time to sit in each space and take in each piece and you know come up with your own conclusion about everything. This is this is just spectacular. What's coming up for the Barnes? We've got a new exhibition opening called Alexei Brodovich, Astonish Me. It opens on March 3rd, and he was a fashion photographer and graphic designer. He lived in Philadelphia for a while and was very impactful in the history of graphic design. But I also want to let people know that we have classes. We have classes for adults that go on all the time. We're introducing new ones every month. Classes on the history of art, um, classes about our collection, and you can come study in the galleries or you can take these classes online. You just have to go to our website and we do offer scholarships. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Jara, you can see me. I'm, I'm not like a kid in the candy store. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, this like, is wonderful. But it looks as though you've really been moved. Ah, yes, I absolutely have been. And why should people come to the Barnes? Oh, it's so special. We just have a lot going on all the time. So not only are we preserving and presenting this collection, but we're always trying to talk about it and bring in new exhibitions and do programs that get people interested in art. And, you know, we have conversations that aren't necessarily about art. We want to be a community place for dialogue. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, I want to remind everyone about the book, The Barnes, Then and Now, Dialogues on Education, Installation, and Social Justice. You can grab the book, but make sure you come down to The Barnes. Martha Lucy, Deputy Director for Research, Interpretation, and Education here at The Barnes, thank you so much for having us. Thank you so much, Raquel. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us on Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on X at Bridging Philly, myself at Raquel on Air, and you can read Shara Day at Shara Day, that's D-A-E. For Shara Day Howard and our producer, Patty McMahon, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.